This episode is brought to you by the Learning Culture Experience, a cohort-based course for learning professionals. You'll learn how to transform your learning culture, transform your people, and ultimately transform yourself. In just five weeks, you'll walk through a system for designing cohort learning experiences and explore the VASE framework for cultivating a learning culture. You will leave the program with your very own cohort learning experience ready to roll out at your company. If you or someone on your team would benefit from learning how to cultivate learning culture and how to bring people together to learn, then apply now to join the program. Go to curiouslion.cloud forward slash experience to find out more. I think it's terribly important to insist on individual values. Learning culture podcast. Initiative, creation, all these things which we value now possible to make organizations on a larger scale than was ever possible before. Learning Culture Podcast. Teach people to analyze the kind of things that are said to them. Hello, friends, ladies, and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of the Learning Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Barry, the CEO and founder of Curious Line. Today's episode is a special one. Today I'm going to share with you a review of a book that I've spent the better part of the last two years with. I first read this book in 2019. Since then, I have spent time with all my copious amounts of notes, all the ideas of the author, and followed all the little hyperlinks to the references and sources that were used in the book, and really gotten my head around the concepts shared in the book. I've also been applying these concepts at the companies that we work with at Curious Lion. And through the last two years, have gotten to know and understand the concepts and ideas in this book at a deep, visceral level. At the beginning of this year, I was finally ready to publish a summary of the book in my own words. And in this special episode of the Learning Culture Podcast, we are turning that summary into a video and audio essay. If you've been enjoying the content we've been sharing up until now, please do us a favor and subscribe on YouTube. If you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, give us a rating and review. Any of those three actions really help us spread the word about what we're doing and introduce us to new audiences. It would mean a lot to me and the team if you took the time to do one of those things. So without further ado, let me dive into a summary of the book, which I will introduce in a second. Many things indicate that we are going through a transitional period when it seems that something is on the way out and something else is painfully being born. It is as if something were crumbling, decaying and exhausting itself while something else, still indistinct, were arising from the rubble. These words were uttered by the former president of the Czech Republic, Václav Havel, in an address to a joint session of the United States Congress in 1994. They could easily be applied to the nature of work today. The reason I bring up a rather obscure reference such as Havel in a video essay about the nature of work is that he went on to hint at a solution rooted in the humanity that applies with just as much sparkling relevance to the transitional period we're experiencing now. In his words, In searching for the most natural source for the creation of a new world order, 
we usually look to an area that is the traditional foundation of modern justice and a great achievement of the modern age, to a set of values that were first declared in this building. I'm referring to respect for the unique human being and his or her liberties and inalienable rights, and the principle that all power derives from the people. This tantalizing vision of the future brings me to the subject of this video essay summary of the book The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge. This book rocked my world and turned my whole perspective on learning and work upside down. It reveals the path for us to navigate from crumbling and decaying to the power that derives from the people. It draws inspiration from a smorgasbord of sources, from George Orwell to Confucius, from ancient Greek to Christian tradition, from anthropology to systems thinking, from science to philosophy, and from a rich depth of experience at companies like Kyocera, Shell, Harley-Davidson, and Hanover Insurance. Chapter 1. What exactly is crumbling and decaying? The revised edition begins with an anecdote in which Senge describes reaching out to Dr. W. Edwards Deming, a pioneer in the field of management, and his inspiration for writing the book, to request for a comment for the book jacket. To his surprise, a letter arrived at his home. It was from Deming, a short paragraph that revealed a deeper layer of connections and a bigger task ahead for Senge. The first sentence took his breath away. Our prevailing system of management has destroyed our people. After catching his breath, Senge read on. People are born with intrinsic motivation, self-respect, dignity, curiosity to learn, joy in learning. The forces of destruction begin with toddlers. A prize for the best Halloween costume, grades in school, gold stars, and on up through the university. On the job, people, teams, and divisions are ranked. Reward for the top, punishment for the bottom. Management by objectives, quotas, incentive pay, business plans, put together separately, division by division, cause further loss, unknown and unknowable. Our organizations are crumbling and decaying because our people are in a state of dysfunction. A state characterized by constant firefighting, defensiveness, empty communication, and a disconnect between learning and working. Reflecting on Deming's letter in the 15 years since the first edition of the book was published, Senge observes that the time available for people to think and reflect is scarcer as are the resources in organizations for developing people. Constant firefighting undermines continuous learning. Instead of deliberate practice, reflecting on lessons learned and engaging in dialogue with peers, people are buried in an avalanche of emails, Slack messages, and the Chinese water torture of urgent but not important tasks. Defensiveness. Stemming from the reactionary mode most people are in comes a form of defensiveness which acts as a protection against being vulnerable. With fires all around us, we need to appear in control and infinitely capable of putting them out. So we pretend we're something that we're not. As the poet and philosopher David White puts it, vulnerability is not a weakness, a passing indisposition, or something we can arrange to do without. Vulnerability is not a choice. Vulnerability is the underlying, ever-present, and abiding undercurrent of our natural state. To run from vulnerability is to run from the essence of our nature. 
The attempt to be invulnerable is the vain attempt to become something we are not, and most especially, to close off our understanding of the grief of others. More seriously, in refusing our vulnerability, we refuse the help needed at every turn of our existence and immobilize the essential tidal and conversational foundations of our identity. Empty communication. Have you ever filled out those employee surveys? It's a great way to let management know what you think. I've really let rip on those in the past. But then I archived the email and I moved on. I never took responsibility for the change I so passionately argued for. Citing a classic Harvard Business Review article by Chris R. Geiris in 1994, Zengi agrees with what the author calls good communication that blocks learning. As Argyris writes, these surveys and focus groups fail because they do not get people to reflect on their own work and behavior. They do not encourage individual accountability. As we will see, the impulse to find blame in someone or something else is at the root of most organizational problems. Disconnect between learning and working. The general malaise from the previous three dysfunctions comes to a head with the foundational disconnect between learning and working. Like a poorly designed building, a disconnect between these crucial components of working life results in the crumble and decay we've come to expect when there is no solid foundation. As Sengi notes, it borders on dereliction that organizations invest so few resources in studying what has succeeded and failed in past strategies, operational changes, and leadership approaches. Instead, they more or less make it up as they go along with little serious theory to guide leaders at different levels. It's no wonder that a new CEO typically sees his or her job as pushing a whole new strategy, almost as if there was no history. Sengi hints at the promised land when he identifies the main flaw in these situations as the absence of effective infrastructures to help people integrate learning and working. The beginning of the journey to the promised land sounds deceptively simple. Quote, creating infrastructures to integrate work and learning starts with appreciating the realities of people's work and identifying where and how specific learning approaches, such as improved reflection, can make practical difference. Before Sengi creates this map, he paints a picture of where we headed. Hey, it's your host, Andrew here. I wanted to take a second just to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, we would love it if you did a couple of things for us. Watching this on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. It really allows us to grow the channel and reach a lot more people like you. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, take a moment to leave us a rating and review. It's a great way to give us some feedback and to tell the world what you think about this podcast. So whether you listen to it on YouTube or you listen to it as a podcast, if you take one of those actions, it would mean the world to me and my team. Thank you, and with that, right back to the show. Chapter 2. What does the promised land look like? In ancient Greece, Kairos was a young and handsome god. The youngest son of Zeus, he is always running with wings on his feet and scales balancing on a sharp edge. He is the god of opportunity. Opportunity never gets old, and yet only appears in fleeting instants, hence the delicately balanced scales. Metanoia was a shadowy goddess, cloaked and sorrowful, who accompanied Kairos in his wake, sowing regret and inspiring repentance in the missed moment. Metanoia is the word Sengi uses to describe the core concept at the heart of what this book is about, the learning organization. It sounds miserable at first glance, sowing regret, inspiring repentance, 
missed moments. But Metanoia, the goddess, also portrayed the promise of lament for those who miss the opportunity. Opportunities are fleeting, after all. Many will miss them at first. But thanks to Metanoia, they're encouraged to adopt an active emotional state in which reflection, revelation, and transformation occur and thus expand the opportunities available in the concept of Kairos. Metanoia is meditation, journaling, conversations with a mentor, working with a coach. Metanoia is the hours spent at the end of a year in reflection on the previous year that makes a good annual review. As I've written about annual reviews, they force you to be honest and clear about where you are and visualize in vivid detail where you want to be. In performing these activities, you illuminate a bridge for yourself. The bridge is an indication of how far you need to go to get to where you want to be. But the bridge is also an incredibly useful map of the projects, tasks, and priorities for the year ahead. A map to help you close the gap. Sengi uses metanoia to refer to the fundamental transformation at the heart of a learning organization. And I quote, At the heart of a learning organization is a shift of mind from seeing ourselves as separate from the world to connected to the world. From seeing problems as caused by someone or something out there to seeing how our own actions create the problems we experience. Just as the concept of metanoia suggests a reflective act in which a person returns to a past event in order to see it anew, in which mind and body, feeling and intellect, collaborate in creating new knowledge and perspective, so does a learning organization continually expand its capacity to create. Quote, For such an organization, it is not enough merely to survive. Survival learning, or what is more often termed adaptive learning, is important. Indeed, it is necessary. But for a learning organization, adaptive learning must be joined by generative learning, learning that enhances our capacity to create. Learning organizations are organizations where people continually expand their capacity to create, where new and expansive patterns of thinking are nurtured, where collective aspiration is set free, and where people are continually learning how to learn together. Learning organizations promise what all learning professionals are after today, building capability. We don't say we can drive a car if we've only ever succeeded in doing it once. Yet this is what we're doing when we measure learning by completion. On a deeper level, developing capability means developing the capacity to reliably produce a certain quality of results. Learning to drive develops from driving regularly, paying attention to how you brake at one time, how you park at another, how you observe your surroundings and your mirrors, and focusing on what you can improve in each of those areas over time. Sengi therefore defines learning like this. Learning is a process of enhancing learners' capacity, individually and collectively, to produce results they truly want to produce. This definition emphasizes two key features of learning. The building of capacity for effective action, as opposed to intellectual understanding only, and the fact that this capacity builds over time. Sengi points out that the key to learning as a process lies in our personal journey of reflection, experimentation, and becoming more open. Culture starts to change through people just being present with people, learning from each other as you embark on similar journeys. Learning and working become integrated, as Ari de Gaius describes in his book The Living Company. We think of planning as learning and of corporate planning 
is institutional learning. Now, you may conclude at this point that the map to the promised land appears simple. In fact, Sengi references a quote from the great Chinese philosopher Confucius, which sums it up perfectly. To become a leader, you must first become a human being. Of course, upon deeper reflection and applying our own dose of metanoia here, there is more than meets the eye. Chapter 3. How we get there. The five disciplines. Quote, we will never transform the prevailing system of management without transforming our prevailing system of education. They are the same system. This is a quote from Dr. W. Edwards Deming. Deming points out that the rot sets in much earlier than working life. By the time children are 10, they know what it takes to get ahead in school and please the teacher, a lesson they carry forward throughout their careers, as Sengi notes. Quote, the relationship between a boss and a subordinate is the same as a relationship between a teacher and a student. Employees spend their time pleasing bosses and failing to improve the system that serves customers. Here enters the five disciplines. The five learning disciplines are concerned with the shift of mind, or metanoia, from seeing parts to wholes, from seeing people as helpless reactors to active participants in shaping their reality, and from reacting to the present to creating the future. The five learning disciplines are personal mastery, mental models, shared vision, team learning, and systems thinking. Let's go into each of those one by one. Personal mastery, quote, organizations learn only through individuals who learn. Individual learning does not guarantee organizational learning, but without it, no organizational learning occurs. The first discipline is the keystone of the learning organization's spiritual foundation. One of the pioneers of personal mastery was Kazuo Inamori, the founder of Kyocera and KDDI, and a devout follower of the Buddha's faith. He believed that tapping the potential of people requires an understanding of things you won't find on many competency maps. Things like subconscious mind, willpower, and the action of the heart or the sincere desire to serve the world. He encouraged his teams at Kyocera to look inwardly as they are continually strived for perfection. You can tell someone has high levels of personal mastery if they have a special sense of purpose about their visions and goals. If they see current reality as an ally, not an enemy. If they are deeply curious. If they feel connected to others and part of a larger creative process. If they live in a continual learning mode. And if they are acutely aware of their own ignorance. Companies resist taking a stand for the full development of their people. Since it's such a radical departure from the traditional contract between employee and organization. It is seen as soft and not easily measured. It is met with cynicism and dismissed as woo. It is uncomfortable because you are forced to confront harsh truths. But thankfully, the contract between employee and organization is changing drastically. The great resignation has showed us that power in the relationship has shifted to the employee who can up and leave whenever they want. So if we want to build a learning organization in which people want to stay, how do we achieve personal mastery? The journey involves being true to your own vision commitment to the truth, and reflection. We'll explore each of those quickly. Being true to your own vision starts with turning the mirror inward. We continually clarify what is important to us, what we want. We continually learn how to see current reality more clearly, where we are. The comparison of what we want and where we are 
generates a creative tension. Tension has a natural tendency to seek resolution. So the essence of personal mastery is learning to generate tension and sustain creative tension in our lives while holding off the twin threats of feeling powerlessness to bring change and unworthy of the results that change brings. A commitment to the truth is the relentless willingness to root out the ways we limit and deceive ourselves and to continually challenge our theories of why things are the way they are. It asks us to recognize that all we have are assumptions and that we should challenge them. The biggest threat to a commitment to the truth is certainty. As Elon Musk advises instead, take the approach that you're wrong. Your goal is to be less wrong. Finally, the ability to reflect on one's thinking while acting was discovered as the distinguishing factor separating truly outstanding professionals in studies by Donald Schon of MIT. The emphasis on action is key. Reflection that isn't connected to action is what makes people think they don't have time for this. A culture that integrates action and reflection arrives at better decisions to which people can genuinely commit. An organization committed to personal mastery creates an environment that encourages personal vision, commitment to the truth, and a willingness to face the gaps between the two. The next step in becoming a learning organization involves a deeper understanding of the truth. Hello, hello. I hope you enjoyed that episode. It's Andrew again with a quick message. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is to leave us ratings and reviews where you listened. If you're on YouTube, hit the like and subscribe buttons and feel free to leave a comment. We love hearing from our listeners and viewers. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please take the time to give us a rating and leave a review. Once again, we love hearing from our loyal listeners. If you're listening to this on Spotify, please hit the follow button to make sure that you don't miss new episodes as they come out. And as a reminder, this episode is sponsored by the Learning Culture Experience, a first of its kind cohort-based learning experience for learning professionals in which you will join a community of 50 other innovative learning professionals designing and developing cohort learning experiences that you can roll out in your companies. To find out more about the program and when the next cohort is starting, check out curiouslion.cloud forward slash experience. See you next week for another episode of the Learning Culture Podcast. Thank you for listening.